Let's backtrack for a moment. In 1 Corinthians 8, 1, we're introduced to the subject. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. The NIV says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now Paul gives a warning uh, down to verse 11. Think of the word knowledge here. For through your knowledge... And their knowledge was correct theologically about idols being nothing in the world. He who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died, your fellow Christian. And so, 12, by sinning against the brethren, 8, 12, and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, conclusion, if food... Here, food sacrificed to idols, but more widely, Paul speaking with extreme language, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now keep reading into verse 1 of chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Now we'll park there, and we'll ask the question, what is Paul doing in chapter 9? Because it does seem like a major turn in terms of the uh, content that we see. How does it connect to chapter 8? I told you chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all about the same subject, and you could put it in one category, that is idolatry. And some in the Corinthian church, through their knowledge, theological knowledge, were using their liberty, the actual word is authority, to stumble other people. And it was kind of like this. I know an idol is nothing theologically. I understand that. It's just a statue. It's not a real god or goddess. Therefore, I can go back to the idol's temple in social context with friends and family and whomever, business associates, and I'm fine because I know what an idol is. But the situation wasn't fine because as they went back to the idols, it was stumbling other people. And namely, they went back to the setting where idols were worshipped and food was sacrificed to them. In fact, some other believers were so stumbled by this that Paul's language says that they were being ruined by it. And as believers were doing things in their so-called liberty, they were hurting others and so sinning against Christ. When you hurt someone who is a fellow Christian, when you sin against them, you're actually sinning against Jesus because Jesus said, when you do it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it, what? To me. You see, we can be very calloused about how our behavior affects other people until we realize that our Lord, since he is the head of the body, everything that comes at his body, he feels. And you know that any part of your body that hurts, your whole body is involved. Amen? <laughs> Use the illustration of walking at night and hitting your little pinky toe on the corner of a wall in the darkness of the night. Wow! Right? And look, there's not one part of your body that could ignore what just happened. Your whole self is involved. 
And the whole household probably knows once they hear you scream that you're totally involved. Well, Jesus is the head of the body. And every time a wound comes into his body, he feels it. He hurts. He rejoices when we rejoice. And he grieves when we grieve. In fact, a sin against his brethren is a sin against him. And I hope you can see that that should give us a whole new outlook on how we treat one another. And the church, sadly, has been famous for not always been being great at treating one another with love. This is how we distinguish ourselves, but we can take other Christians for granted. What you could say of the Corinthians is that they had a bit of an entitlement attitude. You know what an entitlement attitude is? It means that everything I want, everything that I can dream of, I deserve. And if you get in my way, I will simply write you out of the script. Because we have, sadly, raised a generation of kids that are, many of them, entitled. They think that everything that they could dream up they should have, and if somebody is in their way, they could just write them out of the story, write them out of the narrative. But we know this, if you have an entitlement attitude, at some point, the bubble is going to pop. I could say all day long, I believe I can play for the Lakers. I believe I can play for the Lakers. I believe I can play for the Lakers. I got news for you, I'm 5'7". And my vertical is about three inches. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more. I am not playing for the Lakers. Especially at this point in my life. It doesn't matter how much I believe it. I don't believe they're going to sign me. It's just, hey, the bubble has already popped. <laughs> you see, we have to understand that at some point, reality clashes with entitlement. And there were Christians around in the first century who were saying, I can do whatever I want because my knowledge tells me what's right or what's wrong, and I could even make a biblical argument. But Paul says you could have knowledge, you could have all knowledge, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. Knowledge can be dangerous if it puffs you up instead of using it to build others up. And so Paul is going to use his own life as an example. He's going to use a gospel example. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, would you look ahead for a second? Paul says, he says, uh, To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that by all means I may save some. And then he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I do all things for the sake of the good news of the gospel. This is Paul's gospel example. And the implicit question is, do you? Your behavior that you're defending at the expense of other Christians, is this really what you're going to tell Christ 
on that final day? Well, I had justification because I understood this. Paul says, no. There's a deeper, greater question here, and it is, do you have a gospel attitude? One writer says, freedom is not license to do what I want, but liberation to do what I ought. Hear that one more time. Freedom is not license to do what I want. It is liberation to do what I ought. Meaning is not found in always getting my way. Meaning is not found in making a bunch of money. Meaning is found in mission. When people see you coming, do they say, here comes good news? Or, here comes bad news. You see, we are to be a gospel community, and that's what Paul is saying to these other Christians. And if you're going to understand what a gospel community is, we have to understand what the gospel is. Amen? And here's what the gospel is, simply put. The gospel is good news that God so loves you, He sent His only Son. And Jesus Christ, God the Son, whom we saw His deity in chapter 8 and many other places in the Bible, laid aside His rights, His prerogatives of deity for you. He put aside the prerogatives of deity at least for a season while He was here on the planet. He was in a body, right? He limited Himself. But not only did He do that, this Philippians 2, 5-8, through 8, but He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross it was inconvenient for jesus but jesus is the gospel he is the good news he is the good story he is what we share to others what drove jesus to lay aside his rights is captured in one word it's love and that's what first corinthians 13 is going to teach us and that's what first corinthians 16 tells us let everything you do be done in love how much better would our lives be if everything we did was done in love how about 80 (laughs) percent how much would your life improve if at least you tip the scales on the side of love well there were many people who were saying no it's about my, my wants, my social standing. But the gospel says, no, it's about me laying down my rights. Philemon 1.18, Paul says, if he owes you anything, charge it to me. The gospel is a good news attitude. It's laying down my rights for another. Turn to the gospel of John chapter 13. Jesus is getting ready to die. The apostles have been arguing about which of them is the greatest up and down they chew on one another i'm better than you my dog's better than your dog you remember that old commercial i'm gonna have a higher spot i'm i do more things i represent the lord better you name the argument so jesus john 13 12 washes their feet And when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, 
Do you know or do you understand what I've done to you or for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. John 13, 14. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Please note it. I, I gave you an example that you, should, that you also should do as I did to you. I gave you an example. The most powerful sermon, back to 1 Corinthians, is the power of example. I was joking with some, some folks, and we were, I, I'm trying to remember the exact setting, but we were, the question came up, Pastor Michael, uh, when the kids were growing up, did you just roll a pulpit into the living room? All right, everybody line up. Open your Bibles too. No, we, we did devotions together as a family, but I'll tell you this. The most powerful thing that you can do is the power of example. It's the question that your kids are going to ask when you're outside the church, when you're at a store, when you're driving your car, when you're on the Little League field, when you're interacting with your neighbors. Is this faith real? Or is this just a, a show? Or something that they tell me I ought to do, but they don't really live it out? Well, that's the question. And Paul's going to appeal to his own life as an example of what they should be doing. He's going to ask a series of what we would call rhetorical questions in chapter 9, verse, verses 1 and following, with the implied answer, yes. 1 Corinthians 9, 1, am I not free? You can say free to do what I want. Am I not an apostle? Of course he is. He opened the letter that way, 1, 1. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord, which is a sign of an apostle? Are you not my work in the Lord? I think that the Corinthians would say yes to every one of those questions. Now, if you read some commentaries, some of the commentators were saying that some in Corinth were questioning even Paul's apostleship, Paul's authority over, the, over them. And that's one thing that entitlement does, is if I can sideline or marginalize the source of authority or truth, then I can do what I want. If I could say something like this, oh, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't have the information that I have. If I can marginalize a group of people, namely in our culture, Christians, if I could paint them as whacked out, they don't know what they're talking about, uh, all they are is exclusive, bigoted, you, you fill in the blank, if I could put that aside, then I don't have to consider it my worldview. And that's what a lot of the world has done to the Christian church. Marginalize the church so that our voice could be painted as ridiculous. Have you noticed it in the culture? It's happening more and more. In fact, probably, what, 90 plus percent of the university system is not just, has not just marginalized the voice of Christians, but really made fun of us now. We're crazy. We don't know what we're talking about. Well, Paul is saying, look, I have all of these things in my resume. Yes, it's true. I am an apostle. Yes, I saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. Yes, I planted the church that you are now, now a part of. If to others I'm not an apostle, look at verse 2, or to other churches perhaps, 
at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Don't forget about me, Paul might say. Uh, Remember me, the founder of the Corinthian church? Remember me? I'm the one that came into town, preached the gospel to you, and discipled you for 18 months. Remember me? Sometimes as parents, that's how we feel, right? Remember me, the one who gave birth to you, fed you for the first 18 years, 28 years, 38 years of your life. (laughs) I'm over here. It can be hard, right? You, You pour into people, you... You lay groundwork, but eventually they understand, don't they? Eventually, we all probably look back and realize everything that a parent did for us. Or everything that a spiritual parent may have poured into us. That's Paul. Paul's saying, you're the seal of my apostleship. In fact, if you're going to question who I am, then maybe we should question the validity of who you are. Because if I'm not an apostle, then what are you? Are you Christians? You're the seal, the authentication. In the ancient world, a seal gave authentication to usually uh, like a container or something that was being shipped. The seal was ownership and authenticity. The church did not belong to Paul, but he was certainly their founder. Look at verse 3. My defense, literally my apologetic, apologia is the Greek word, To those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Of course you do, they would say to Paul. These are basic necessities. Can't we eat and drink too? Do we not have a right? Notice the repetition of the word right, which I think every time is exousia. It's the word really for authority, but it could be translated right. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Remember, Paul was single at this point even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or that's Peter. Just a side note, Peter was married. So what was implied in this is that as Peter traveled, did he have a right to take his wife along and have her expenses covered? I would say, yes. Then Paul would say, well, how much more us or how much more me? One writer in talking about Paul says that Maybe the Corinthians are offended that Paul won't take their money. Because remember, as Paul is in Corinth, he won't take their money. Now, other churches did support Paul, but where he was, apparently he wouldn't take the money directly when he was ministering in that town. And that offended some of the Corinthians. Do you know why? They were so used to paying philosophers and teachers that came into town And when they gave money to these philosophers and teachers, there was a win-win. The philosopher or teacher got the money, but the people who gave the money were able in some way to control them. When Paul said, no, I won't take your money, he wasn't playing their game. Now, it does seem the opposite today, right? It seems like there's a lot of people who won't even bother coming to a Christian church because they think it's all about the money. Some years ago, I was uh, ministering uh, 
working on a friend of mine. We played slow pitch softball together. And I, I was saying, hey, come to church. No, it's not like that. Oh, it's all a racket. Uh, all they want is my pocketbook. No, my church isn't like that. I promise you. I hounded him. I prayed. I invited and I prayed. Finally, my friend decided to come to church on a Sunday. And I opened the bulletin. And the title of the sermon was, The Lord of the Wallet. No! I don't think there was ever a sermon title like that in the 10 years that we were at the church. But this particular Sunday, my friend walked in, I was like, ah, let's go to another church. <laughs> but maybe the Lord was saying something even in that. Maybe for my friend, his God was money. Maybe that was the providential hand of God. And then again, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> but it was really strange that finally he came on a Sunday that that was the message. And many of your friends and family may feel that way as well. They may, they may think, oh, it's just a racket. But Paul wanted to move that away. He didn't want that to be a hindrance. Do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? I'm not sure what the relationship with Barnabas was with the Corinthian church, but Paul includes himself. Remember, Paul was a what? He was a tent maker. He had a trade. And I remember years ago, I, w I had entered into the ministry, and I was working for a printing company, and the church had hired me, I should say loosely hired me. I was not paid, but I was put on staff as the pastor of evangelism in the 90s. I was in a staff position, but I worked a full-time job, so the church did not pay me any money, and that was fine, because that's where I was at. But as time went by, the next five years, I you know, had come out to Corona, and I was, I was doing a lot of different things, and I was bivocational at the time, and I was feeling a little sorry for myself at times. I would make sure that my ministry wasn't getting in the way of raising a family, so I would wait to prepare my sermon after the kids went to bed, and I'd stay up late. And uh, I remember I, heard, I was listening to Chuck Smith preach, and he goes, I really feel sorry for these seminary students who go to college, and I was waiting for him to speak to my situation, and then have to work for a long time and be bivocational, <laughs> get my violin out. And then he said, I feel sorry for them if they get a job directly into full-time ministry and get a paycheck from that because it never really shows their motivation for ministry. It would be better if they went to work in the secular world, had to work there, and that they didn't get a ministry position immediately that paid them a good wage because then they never have a chance to see what their true motivation is for being in the ministry. In other words, is it just for a paycheck? So I was interviewing for the pastorate 20 years ago, and we were having a kind of a little mixer, and uh, I was just saying hi to people, and I was about to become the pastor of the church, and this lady comes over, and she had a pad, and she had a list of questions for me. And she was, you know, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? And then she said, would you do this job if they didn't pay you? And I was like, well, lady, they're barely paying me anyway. <laughs> I didn't say that. That's what I thought. <laughs> I said, yes, I would. 
because this is my passion. I'm, I'm not in the ministry to get a paycheck. I'm in the ministry because I've been called. And of course, there's a danger as time goes on that we don't become comfortable and begin to do what we do just for a paycheck, whatever that may be. And so, do we not have uh, a right to refrain from working? I'd say yes. Look at verse 7. Examples. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants or sows a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Who tends or shepherds a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Can you imagine we... We send a soldier onto the battlefield, but then we say, uh, you got to get a part-time job on the side to pay for your rifle. Or whenever you go to the mess hall, make sure that you know that the buffet is $9.99. No, we take care of them because they're fighting for our country. How about someone who sows a vineyard? Can't he eat of the fruit of it? How about someone who shepherds a flock? Can he not have some of the goat's milk? Of course. You see, he should be able to share in that which comes from it. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Verse 8. Doesn't even the Bible or the law, the Bible of the day was the Old Testament, say these things also? For it is written in the law of Moses, quoting Deuteronomy 25.4, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen. Is he? Now, don't get nervous. For those of you who are oxen lovers, there may be even a group out there fighting for the oxen. I don't know. God obviously is the creator of everything. And in the verse, he's saying, don't muzzle an ox while he's threshing, which within the verse means God cares about the ox. We were in Nepal and India in 2001, went on a two-week missions trip there. And we're back in the rice fields. And we're going, literally going to share the gospel hut to hut. And I looked to my right, and there was a man plowing a field, a rice field. The water was about, seemed like about a foot or two high in the field. And he was riding on the back of this plow, and this oxen was pulling him. And I was like, no way. And he's there, and this guy was all muscular, and he, he was in bare feet. And I'm like, I feel like I've gone back 2,000 years. So we went to this hut, and through a translator, I shared the gospel. And this young, uh, it was a brother and sister, they were probably in their late teen years, were really listening intently to the gospel. And I gave an invitation, and they both opened their hearts to the Lord. It was awesome. And I had gone to a hut during that day where the people, and what happened was, when you went to a hut, they were so hospitable, they would stop everything, even if they were in the middle of lunch, and they would hear what you had to say. Plus, being an American with white skin, they were very interested, like, wow, what are you doing out here, man? So, anyway, I went to one hut. They said they had never heard the name of Jesus before. I was the first one to share who Jesus was. They'd never heard the gospel. Never heard about him. So I preached the gospel. This brother and sister get saved, and they want to take a photograph uh, of the moment. 
And so I was like, cool. And we're all looking around for the sister. Where'd she go? Where'd she go? She came out in a different dress. She had gone to change. And I exclaimed in the middle of the rice fields, women are the same all over the world. This is awesome. She brought out a new dress. She was in a hut. Where'd she get the dress? I don't know. But it was awesome. Paul says, are you with me, Bible students? I can make a biblical argument too. I could say from Deuteronomy in the law that you don't muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And someone might say, well, then why aren't you taking money, Paul? Or is he speaking 10 altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake. It was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope. The thresher to thresh in hope of sharing in the crops. They ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Paul's saying, look, everybody works with an expectation of reward, don't you? I mean, if you were working your job all week and your boss said there's a 50-50 chance I'll pay you at the end of the week, (laughs) that would be kind of a hopeless feeling like, I don't know if I'm going to get paid or not. That might affect how you work. Paul says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, Is it too much if we should reap material things from you? This is Romans 15, 27. Yes, they were pleased to do so, Gentile offering to the Jews, so that they they are indeed indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. There have been many pastors, the the Reeds uh, brought it up that they are poor. That they, I remember uh, Dr. Dobson telling stories about his dad. His dad was a traveling minister. And he would come home at the end of being gone for months and his wife would expect that, you know, some offerings had been given to him and Dr. Dobson would say, you know, my family was really living by a thread. And then he'd say, He'd watch his dad go into another room and confess to his mother that, yes, he made some money, but somewhere along the way, he met someone who was in need and he gave away all the money that he had earned. And that became a living example to Dr. Dobson about what it means to be a person who gives. You see, if others share the right over you, 12, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. You know, after Paul's made this argument, you want to say, okay, Paul, here, I'm writing a check right now. (laughs) Okay. But the point that Paul's making is, even though we have the right, we didn't take advantage of the right. I don't want it. Then, Paul, why did you spend all these verses to convince us that it's only right to pay you and the laborer is worthy of his wages? Even Jesus said that. Why would you make this case to point to you to an example that I really want you to feel? Even though we have the right, we didn't take advantage of it. And even though you have the right, perhaps, the authority, a biblical uh, argument to make to go in because the idol is nothing doesn't mean you have to use 
every right that you have. Our society is so concerned about personal rights, almost at all costs, right? It's my right to do this. It's my right to do that. If they don't have what I like, I'll just do this or that. And Paul's saying, look, I laid down my rights. Don't you know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? Could be referencing a pagan or uh, the Jewish temple. And those who attend regularly to the altar, this has been the issue, food sacrifice, uh, have their share with the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. The workman is worthy of his wages. But I have used none of these things even though they were his rights, in quotes. And I am not writing these things that it may be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. You see, before you get too excited about entitlements, before you get too excited about rights, I've used none of these. Oh, it was my right to but I didn't. What's Paul getting at? He's saying, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. And then he pronounces a woe on himself. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, after I became a Christian and the Lord called me into the pastorate, you can imagine you know, maybe times when you might want to give up. Uh, the ministry can be taxing and it can be hard. It's hard on missionaries. And I think the uh, temptation to give up is an ever-present pounding by the enemy. I remember I was driving down the road one day and I saw a sign, it was a real estate sign, and it said something, Smith and something, and it was advertising some real estate. And it just hit me one day, Chuck Smith was a big influence in my life. What if Chuck Smith would have become a real estate agent? <laughs> now, I am not bagging on real estate agents. Please, hear what I'm saying. But Chuck Smith actually was offered a managerial position at a supermarket. And when he was in the early years of his ministry in Corona, he got an offer from a supermarket that would have taken care of all of his family's needs because the church was very small and they were scraping by. And he, he tells a story. He says, I was very tempted to take that job. And the Lord said no. Some of you went to the uh, Corona Life Services banquet. Pastor Jack Hibbs did the opening prayer there. And what I heard, I wasn't able to make it. I wasn't feeling well, but... I heard that Pastor Jack came up to the microphone and said, I'm the survivor of a botched abortion. Can you imagine? Think of all the things that God has done through Jack Hibbs' life. What if that abortion doctor was successful? People in New York apparently can't figure this one out. That if there's a botched abortion that a baby deserves just basic medical care, they said no to that. Well, Paul's saying, I'm under compulsion. Remember Jeremiah? 
Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. And there were times when Jeremiah was something like this. Lord, I don't want to say that. That's the message you have for these people. I don't want to say that. But he said, if I tried to trap it in, it became like a fire in my bones and I had to let it out. Some years ago after 9-11 happened, there was a prayer meeting at the fountain. And uh, several of us from the community were going to pray. And uh, it was me and uh, Ike Riddle. Ike Riddle is the former pastor of Olive Branch and he's since moved out of state. And we were two pastors that were going to pray for the nation. And the whole day I was spending in front of my Bible, Lord, what, what, what do you want to say? And the Lord had me in Jeremiah all day. And I'm talking about harsh, radical stuff in Jeremiah. And all day long I was saying, this is not what you want to say, right, Lord? This is not what you want to say, right, Lord? And he was saying, no, this is what I want to say. This is not what... So, I showed up a little early, and I said to Ike, I said, Ike, the Lord has me in Jeremiah all day. What's he put on your heart? And Ike looked at me and said, Jeremiah. <laughs> and I said, do you mean the song, Jeremiah was a bullfrog? No, not that. The book of Jeremiah. And I'm telling you, folks, it was not what people wanted to hear at that fountain. People at the fountain wanted to hear us, everybody say, it's okay, we're okay, everybody's okay. And we were like, no, we need to repent and cry out to the Lord. And there were some folks that showed up at the fountain, and they, it was obvious that they were a, of a different religious persuasion. And as I was praying, they walked away. Don't want to hear that. Don't want to hear that. How many people do you think when Paul was preaching walked away? Oh, they didn't just walk away. Some people tried to kill him. Stone him. Get rid of him. Some people said, we're not going to eat another meal until he's dead. How's that for a popularity contest? I really want to be in the ministry. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. You get to teach from a pulpit. Yeah, <laughs> you do. But there's a whole lot of other things that go on. <laughs> but Paul says, look, I've got a heavenly compulsion. I'm compelled to do what I do. I don't want to be compelled by a paycheck. I want to be compelled by the Lord. Just like Jeremiah, Paul says in Galatians 1.15 that God set him apart from his mother's womb to proclaim the gospel. God has a gospel mission for his church. Every one of us is in gospel ministry. That's what gives your life meaning. That's what gives your life purpose. Is if you're redeeming it for the gospel. Are you? You know, if the church gets too comfortable in America, it comes down to our rights. What we want to hear, our entitlements. This church, like a lot of churches, scrapes by to get enough volunteers in just about every major ministry that we have. Why? Because, let's face it, we struggle with some entitlement issues. We struggle with, you know, making it about us instead of making it about the gospel. We struggle with laying down our likes and our rights 
for the sake of other people. And Paul says, if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, <laughs> I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Maybe the NIV helps us here. I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. Paul says, preaching is not my career, it's my calling. I didn't volunteer for the job. I was met on the road to Damascus where the Lord said, get up and I'll tell you what you're going to do. What then is my reward, says Paul. Final verses. That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. One writer says, Paul has found a reward more valuable than rights. My pay is to serve without pay. Or as Acts 20.35 says, it is more blessed to... What's that say again? It, oh, it's give. It's more blessed to give. To receive. Hmm. You guys buying that? You believe that? Have you experienced it? Have you ever been in a situation where you gave to somebody time, maybe treasure, prayer? Maybe you were just there for somebody in their dark hour. And they said to you, man, that meant everything to me. How blessed did you feel? That means everything. I heard Raul Reese tell a story. He said, uh, he goes, there was a need in, in the church, if I recall the story correctly, and he gave away his last $5. And it was a bit begrudging. He, he gave it away and he said, man, I was going to use this for Coco's. We're going to go to Coco's. We're going to go to Coco's. But, but he gave the $5 to this person. And he was kicking and screaming a little bit, at least on the inside, smiling on the outside. Yeah, yeah, I'll help, yeah. And then somebody in the church came up and said, hey, let's all go to Coco's. I'm buying For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. For Paul, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. And we're going to see next week that he does all things to win people. To win the lost. And I think Paul's point is this. Maybe some of us need to lose more to win. Have you ever come to the end of an argument with your spouse and thought, yeah, I got give it right there, yeah! And just for a moment, it felt pretty good. Let me tell you something. You want to know something? In 1978, when you took the cocaine, shoom, shoom, oh, oh, kind of even felt good when it left your mouth. Oh, hit the target. And then it doesn't feel so good. In fact, you would have been better off losing the argument because you would have won in a different way. Sometimes, maybe in giving something up, 
in losing, we actually win. That's Paul's whole argument here. I don't take the money, even though I have the right to, because I'm trying to convey the gospel. And I'm hoping you Corinthians would see that example and do the same. Father, we are humbled by your word. It is challenging and encouraging. Thank you, Jesus, that you became poor, that we might become rich. Thank you, Jesus, that you laid down your rights. You left the glory of heaven to die on that awful cross. It was a huge step down for you to become human, let alone to, to be born in a cave, raised in a nowhere town that people made fun of called Nazareth. Have the religious leadership largely reject you and die on a cross while you have the, had the power and authority at any moment to stop it. You could have fried the landscape, you could have eliminated people on the spot, but instead you prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You turned to a thief who said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he wasn't worthy or deserving of anything. And you said, most assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The gospel is free. It's about laying down one's rights for the sake of others. And Lord, we confess it is so hard to live out a gospel-dominated life. Our flesh, our hearts can be so self-centered and so calloused. And I pray over my heart and our hearts collectively that you would soften them to the mission and the reality of what it means to live out a gospel life. It's not always about us getting our way or demanding our rights. It is about laying down our lives for others, husbands for their wives, wives for their husbands, fellow Christians for one another, at work, maybe a living example of the gospel that opens a door to share the good news with a friend. Oh Lord, I know your people are smart and wise and they can make the appropriate applications in the moment but I pray you would bless them and encourage them that you laid down your rights for us. And if you loved us so much in this way, we ought to love one another. Lord, forgive us for the many times that we've fallen short in all the different contexts that we can think of. But thank you that you are so faithful to love us through thick and thin. You never give up on us even when we fall on our face, even when we get it wrong, even when our thinking's been wrong, even when we could point to something that we've anchored our behavior in but then realize, but it wasn't driven by love. We know that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And I pray that this community of saints and any person hearing the sound of my voice, maybe your voice, just encouraging us to say, 
Let everything you do be done in love. Well, if you're here and you've not met Jesus, you don't have any purpose. Maybe meaning is the furthest thing from your mind, but you want to have that. Cry out to him. He is literally a prayer away. And he will save you. And if you're here, I know he has called you. You just have to say yes. I am willing. You will find that life as a Christian is the most beautiful meaning that you'll ever experience. It won't be easy, but it will be right. It won't be smooth sailing all the time, but you will feel blessings as you, as you never have before. Open your heart to him. It, if you have been calloused in some way and your heart is hurt, just say, Lord, soften my heart to the gospel, to a gospel attitude, to a good news attitude in my life. Lord, would you bless those who are doing some business with you? May you minister to them. May you meet their needs. May you strengthen them. May you encourage them about the good news. We're ambassadors of good news. Help us to live that good news every day by your strength and for your glory. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.